And you know, when you read historians' accounts of what people believe, say in 1500, and they go, well, hang on now, if you know, if witches are not real, then maybe demons aren't real. And if demons aren't real, maybe the devil doesn't exist. And no devil, no God. It's like, hang on now, let's not go too far down this road of skepticism here. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I want to talk about skepticism, and I want to talk about science. Going back to the roots of my podcast and why I'm here, fighting against anti-science sentiment. And to do that, I've got a special guest whose name is pretty well synonymous with skepticism, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, please share it with your friends, spread it around, hit like, and send me a comment. Join my Facebook group. Before we get started, I want to have a shout out to a patron sponsor. Terrestrial Energy has joined the Rational View as a Frodo-level sponsor. So thank you very much for your help. The Rational View could not exist without the help of sponsors to spread the word and advertise and make sure that science is front and center of public policy. Dr. Michael Shermer received his BA in psychology from Pepperdine University, MA in experimental psychology from California State University, Fullerton, and his PhD in the history of science from Claremont Graduate University. He's been a college professor since 1979. Dr. Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the host of the podcast, The Michael Shermer Show, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches Skepticism 101. For 18 years, he was a monthly columnist for Scientific American. Dr. Shermer is the author of several New York Times bestsellers and has appeared on Oprah, Dateline, 2020, and The Colbert Report. His two TED Talks were voted in the top 100. He's been interviewed in countless documentaries and was the co-host of the Family Channel television series, Exploring the Unknown. Neil deGrasse Tyson has called him a beacon of reason in an ocean of irrationality. Dr. Shermer, welcome to The Rational View. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm honored that you've decided to, to grace us with your presence. Your CV is very impressive. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you accumulate. I don't know, let's see, I'm 67 now, and I became kind of intellectually active at around age 17. So that's plenty of time. Yeah, it's it's a, <laughs> it's an amazing CV. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? You went to a, a Christian college, but you're now an atheist. What was your, what was your path like th- to get to where you are. Oh, yeah. Well, I've written a fair amount about this in my book, The Believing Brain. I have a whole chapter about that and hints in a few other places. Uh, I wasn't raised religious. My parents were um, secular, although not actively secular. They they just never gave it much thought, I think, like most people that came of age in the Depression and in fought in World War II and so on. They never went to college. They they never thought about these big issues, or if they did, they never talked to me about it. Uh, but I was influenced by my peers in the early 70s in high school. Um, there was kind of the uh, the born-again movement was taking off, the sort of non-denominational evangelical uh, movement, um, kind of the second wave of that. <clears throat> there was an, a, a big wave earlier in the century. 
Uh, but this one was kind of picking up momentum following the 60s and the New Age movement and the, the, the kind of recognition that religion as an organized institution has serious problems. So let's just go straight to God in, in the Bible and skip all the religious stuff. It, so that was kind of the underlying current when I got involved in that. Um, and one of my best friends was uh, a Presbyterian. They went to this Glendale Presbyterian Church. And so he invited me. And I just said, well, OK, you know, and I liked his sister. He had a really cute sister. I thought, well, that could, maybe there's added bonus here. I get to spend a little time with okay, her. OK, I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's OK to have multiple motives, even though I, I, took, I took all the religious stuff seriously, uh, at least at that time. Anyway, I, I liked her. Mm -hmm. Her name is Joyce. Anyway, so, uh, but this uh, Presbyterian teacher, preacher, he was something else. Boy, he was like a Tony Robbins, big guy. And he was, you know, working the stage, working the audience. And I'm just sitting there going, holy crap, this guy's, this is really amazing stuff. And he was pretty intellectual too. And, and so uh, I always enjoyed that aspect of it. You know, the big questions about uh, God's existence and the problem of evil and free will and determinism and all that. I was just kind of getting... Uh, introduced to some of those ideas, and I was interested in them. And then he did a calling up at the end of the sermon. He said, you know, if you want to accept Jesus into your heart, come on up. And people were getting up, and I'm like, well, okay, I guess I'll go. <laughs> so I just got up and, <laughs> and just went to the front, and, uh, you know, they did the whole, you know, I, I think they, they put their hands on our heads or shoulders or something, and and we read that passage, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, you know, so on and so forth. You may have eternal life. And I thought, okay, I did it. I'm in. Sweet. And so, uh, although uh, I remember the next day, Monday, back at high school, I told my friend Frank about this. Uh, this is a different friend because he had been encouraging me to go to, to church also and get religious. And so I told him I did it. Frank, I, I went I, and I went up and I became born again. He said, wait, wait, which religion? I went the Presbyterian. He goes, no, that's the wrong one. I went, what? <laughs> of course. <laughs> the wrong one. <laughs> and it turns out he was a Jehovah Witness. And I thought, oh, OK. So I didn't know what that meant until much later. I, I read about the JWs. I went, OK, well, I can see why he would think that's the wrong one. <laughs> and uh, But that always sat in the back of my mind like, huh. The wrong one. Okay. So how do you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I mean, I didn't give it a lot of thought at the time, but later I kind of thought through that. Later when I was in graduate school and I was studying comparative world mythologies and religions and social psychology and sociology and anthropology, and and I kind of went through my Joseph Campbell stage and all that, I remembered, you know, yeah, that all these different people, they believe stuff completely differently than me, yet they seem just as convinced they're right as I do. So what are the chances I got it right and all these other people are wrong or or that we're all wrong or it's, or it's a different kind of truth that, you know, can't be determined through science because that's what I was studying at the time. Anyway, so I, I went through this for about seven years and I got pretty serious about it. And and then I had to pick a college. So I went to Glen. Uh, I went to well, first I went to Glendale College for my GE. It's just a community college. But then I went to Pepperdine, which was uh, a Church of Christ school. It was conservative, very Christian. You know, no girls in the dorms and vice versa. No dancing on campus. Uh, President Ford came to speak. Uh, um, you know, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, I got pretty, everyone was reading Atlas Shrugged and, you know, all the conservative economic stuff, you know, so I got well indoctrinated into all that stuff. But then, then I went to a, just a secular state university for graduate school and experimental psych. So, um, and I just kind of gradually gave it up, you know, I didn't deconvert okay, overnight no like I did. 
break moment? No, no, no. So, you know, just again, just kind of chipping away. And also there's a cultural aspect to this. You know, when you're at a Christian school and surrounded by everybody who believes just like you, including the professors, you know, there's kind of an internal consistency and logic to it. It's all coherent. All, all doubts are answered and uh, understood and answered. And everybody believes like you, so it's reinforced. And then when I was at... Uh, Cal State Fullerton for my master's in experimental psych, no one was religious, or if they were, no one talked about it. It just wasn't relevant. And, uh, and, and that made it kind of okay to just doubt and just think about it and talk about it without any threat at all. Just like, well, yeah, whatever, dude, just believe whatever you want. I'm like, okay. And uh, so uh, there was nothing to lose personally. My family wasn't religious, so it's not like they were going to disown me or anything like that. In fact, I think when I did give it up, they were kind of relieved because one of the aspects of being an evangelical is you're supposed to evangelize, which literally means you go door to door. You tell everybody you can about the good news, you know, the gospels. That's what they mean. The good news. Jesus died for your sins. You get to have eternal life. And in a way, if you don't tell people about it, that's kind of immoral because here you have this inside knowledge about eternal life, mm-hmm. you know, an ultimate infinite love from God. You know, how could you not tell people about this? Right? That's the attitude by evangelicals. Sure, sure. And so, yeah, I went door to door. I told everybody, you know, I could about it. So I'm sure a lot of my friends and family were like, thank God he gave that up. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gets, it gets, it gets burdensome after a while. But then the, the pendulum kind of swung the other way for you and you became editor of Skeptic Magazine. And, you know, your, your name is synonymous with skepticism now. Yeah. So um, I, I wouldn't say by then it was a, uh, like an ex-smoker running around trying to talk people out of this. Uh, I, I, by then, in, that was 1992, we founded Skeptic. I'd gone past that. You know, I did go through my kind of militant stage for a while. Uh, but now I'm really just more interested in, you know, the nature of belief systems, how they work, uh, different kinds of truths, religious truths, political truths, mythic truths, you know, lived experience truths versus, you know, the kind of truths that we're into, empirical science truths. And, you know, when you recognize that there's these other kinds of truths, they're, they're not equivalent, uh, but they, they go a long way to explaining why people hold beliefs. And, I'm more interested now in just that, that latter question. You know, why, why is it people believe this kind of stuff? I'm starting to get into that. And, and you know, I, I've been motivated to create this podcast through, you know, encountering forces of anti-science mainly uh, and trying to get the scientific rational view out there, <laughs> thus the name. You know, and, and the forces of anti-science like to highlight that, you know, scientific thinking is often overthrown, there's revolutions, we're always wrong, and then they proceed to kind of throw the whole enterprise out with that with that realization. You know, there's been the, the recent reproducibility crisis in the social sciences that kind of plays into this mindset. Um, my impression of science is that it gets asymptotically closer to what the universe really does to, to better predicting what's happening next in the universe. And while also becoming more general, you know, uh, being paired away with Occam's razor, taking, a, taking away unnecessary variables, uh, getting down to the most general statement you can. And the scientific re- Revolutions, as I understand them, typically retain the old understandings as a special case. It's not saying that it was wrong, it's just it was incomplete. 
How would you characterize the practice in advancement of science? Yeah, I, I used to use that asymptotic approach to the truth. And there's still something to it in the large scale scheme of things. Let's say over the last 500 years, you know, we're getting to a closer understanding of truth about about the true nature of reality, that is, as long as we use the word with a small t, truth, no capital T, truths in science. But uh, it's a lot messier than that. I mean, uh, even even in the kind of the simpler world of you know, the physical sciences, where it, it seems like uh, empirical experiments settle issues once and for all, Galileo dropping the two different size balls off the Tower Pisa, which probably never happened, but even if he did, it, he at least did something like that in both thought experiments and rolling balls down planes. Uh, or, you know, the kind of Newtonian worldview. And then, you know, Einstein overthrowing that, or not overthrowing it, really just building on it. Uh, but just take the case of the Eddington eclipse experiments, which allegedly confirmed Einstein to be correct in a kind of Popperian way, like we're going to try to falsify this and and uh, and see whether Newton was right or Einstein was right. Newton had predicted that starlight would be deflected by the sun uh, by a certain degree, uh, just ba based on his um, uh, analysis of what he thought gravity was, you know, pulling the light toward it. And Einstein said, no, no, it's it's not a pulling force. It's it's the bending of space time by a large object. And so the light would fall closer in to because of the distortion of space time. But they had two different estimates of how much the starlight would be deflected. So famously, you know, Eddington set out to um, to actually test this by looking at what the star field behind the sun at one time of the year looks like compared to another time of the year when it's dark out at that same time. You can't, you can't take a picture of the sky uh, of the stars when the sun is out, except during an eclipse, right? Mm -hmm. So, But it turns out if you actually read that story, I mean, usually you just read it in, the, in these kind of potted biographies and, and histories of science. You know, it just says, well, in 1919, Eddington went and did this, confirmed it. Uh, and so Einstein became world famous after that, and, and he did. 1920 was, you know, as famous as Charlie Chaplin, and you know, rolling with the with the big stars of the time, and so on. But in fact, there were two expeditions, and Eddington's was one, and there was this other one in South America, and that trip in South America had two different telescopes, and those two telescopes, one got. Uh, inconclusive readings because the mirror was distorted because of the heat or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the other one got um, measurements closer to Newton's prediction rather than Einstein's prediction. And Eddington got Einstein's predictions. So who was right? Well, really, this was not settled. But Eddington kind of railroaded over the other two guys and said, nah, you know, mine's probably right. And those guys just got it wrong because of their distorted lenses and whatnot. Uh, mirrors. And um, and so he, he kind of took the day at the time, not by empirical truth, but just like he had higher status. He was very confident he got it right. And the other data was simply wrong. And, uh, and, and he kind of just railroaded it, railroaded the other ones. Then later, it was confirmed that he was right, and the other ones were not right. So, you know, later, the confirmation came, consensus was reached. But, you know, but just telling that little story, you know, that shows you how messy it is, what a social process it is, and how even reaching consensus in science usually takes a long time. And there's, there's definitely have been backward steps, right? There have been railroadings, as you say, and, and false conclusions. 
that have later been overturned. Certainly, it's it's not a, a monotonic approach. Yeah, and that's the physical sciences. You know, the social sciences are way messier. You know, we take something like intelligence. You know, well, what is that? Well, we're going to say it's this score on this test. Uh, okay. Well, what's on the test? You know, and is that really measuring what you think it's measuring? Is it does it have content validity? Is it reliable? Do you get the same measurements? Well, I mean, this field is a century old now, and it's 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 pretty well it's pretty well established. But there's still a sense that there's something like intel like an IQ score in your head somewhere. You know, the equivalent of whatever would generate that this G small G intelligence, general intelligence. Well, maybe yes. Some evidence for that, but you know, we you know we tend to then reify the score as something not just representing intelligence, but like your potential for success in life and so on. And there it gets much messier. Well, what do you mean by success in life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that income? <laughs> Is that longevity? Is it you know social status? What happy marriage? What what are you what are we talking about here? And uh, you know because there's data showing that you know the Smarter people make more money. Well, is that because they're smart? Is it because they had smarter parents and the parents nurtured them through their environment? They read more books to them. They got tutors. They sent them to better schools. That's culture. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's all wrapped up in nature nurture stuff. And you know, my point here is that, you know, that, that, you know, getting closer to what actual intelligence is. Yes, kind of generally we're moving in that direction, but it's a super messy up and down process. You also get this dichotomy. Many in the physical sciences would say that the social sciences lack rigor. You know, they don't see it as a a hard science. And I think a lot of that is the statistical basis of physical sciences as a much higher standard for publishing a a result as true. You need to give me five sigma on a particle physics experiment before you've discovered a new particle. In the social sciences, you just need 95% uh, confidence, like a 1 in 20 kind of thing. And I think because of that, uh, John Ioannidis published a paper in 2005 titled Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. Basically, it's a selection, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. So higher standards, of course, but not just that. Also, um, more replication is needed. And, you know, more corroboration and more competition between social scientists trying to study these things. And, uh, you know, that that's part of the problem. Also, announcing ahead of time what it is exactly you're going to study and which uh, tests you're going to run. And you have to publish the results of all of them. You know, like uh, Daryl Ben famously, you know, ran nine different experiments on that ESP test where he allegedly found backward uh, causality. Uh, I don't you know, well, just in case your listeners are familiar with this. This is kind of the, the, the study that launched the uh, replication crisis um, in the first place, the recognition that we have a crisis. That is, uh, you know, uh, psychics and ESP proponents, psych proponents always said, you know, uh, you know, what, what does it take for you guys, you skeptics, you scientists, to accept psi is real? And we would always say, well, you got to have, you know, published in a peer-reviewed journal, you know, by a real scientist, that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> sometimes we would say that kind of snarkily, right, knowing they don't have any. Well, it's also held against you. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, yeah. So then Daryl Bem, Daryl Bem, this uh, world-class experimental psychologist, ran this experiment in which he purportedly found statistically significant results uh, in this this psi experiment, and he published it in this prestigious journal of, of uh, personality and social psychology, one of the most prestigious, most cited journals. 
And it was just, okay, Shermer, here it is. Now what? It's like, well, okay, I'm, I, I misspoke when I said, you know, one scientist with one experiment and one peer-reviewed journal. Okay. You got to have multiple, right? So it turns out, you know, when, when people really looked more carefully at this, he, you know, he had nine different experiments, only one of which was statistically significant. Okay, so what were the results of the other eight? You know, and, and, and that one wasn't the last one. That was like in the middle. So, and he was tweaking the variables, changing things around. And this is very commonly done, this so-called so p-hacking, where you're that 0.05 or 0.01 or 0.001, whatever your standard is, that's the p-value. Well, you can hack that by, you know, it's like, well, we got this one result and it's way out here. It'd be the equivalent of like Bill Gates lives in our neighborhood, so our average income in our neighborhood just, you know, went up $100,000 a month that we all make when we don't make that. So that's not fair. So we're going to throw that one out. Here's this low one. We'll throw that data point out. And and these people over here, that they don't really count. And you're kind of like after the fact sorting through, it's called data mining, to find something significant. And there is the social aspect, because I got to publish. And because if I don't get published, then I don't get tenure and you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you're talking about social career things that have nothing to do with empirical science, you know, kind of clouding the whole issue. Now, back to your physics example, though, you know, they can't tell you which molecule is going to do what in this little box of gas. All they can do is say, well, you know, the volume is this, the density or whatever, the mass is that or this or that. You know, there's this many. On average, here's what's going to happen. But we can't tell you what that molecule right there is going to do. Well, that's kind of what we do. You know, say, well, OK, so you have you know, a million smokers. And so we're going to look at the ones that, uh, you know, that smoke this much and this much and this much. And then you have the non-smokers. And then we're going to control for their diet, their exercise and where they live and all these other variables that could confound how long they live or whatever it is you're trying to measure. Uh, now, I can't tell you, you, you know, you personally, you could smoke a pack a day and live to be 100. <laughs> That's entirely possible. There are examples of this. And you got the guy that runs, you know, a marathon every week and he eats granola and, and he keels over dead at age 30, right? So it, we, we can't make any predictions about, you know, people, it's just that group, you know, kind of a collective thing. So that's always a problem for everybody. Yeah, it's just the the statistics, um, and this the replication crisis was, as you say, brought on by maybe this this uh, BEM paper. But basically, they went back, and there was a a concerted effort in the social sciences to try to reproduce some of the major results in the field, and reproduction doesn't. Reproduction of science is, you know, if you look at the, the Popperian way science is supposed to move forward, you, you reproduce science, you, you do something and then you want it to be reproducible. If it's not a reproducible result, it's not science. But people don't gain um, tenure by reproducing other people's results. In most cases, you have to have your own ideas. And this is, you know, you have to be innovative. And so very few people want to spend time reproducing results. So in this case, we've gone forward with a 95% standard for publishing something when probably 19 other people did the same study and didn't find anything. So the one in 20 that found a one in 20 effect <laughs> will publish it and become famous and get the professorship. Yeah, so yeah, Stuart Ritchie has a book about this uh, called Science Fictions. Uh, and he's very good on this, that you know, he kind of lists the, you know, 20 different problems with the whole scientific process. And that's one of them, you know, is that the that top journals, the better the journal, the less likely they are to publish replication studies because th those aren't interesting. We need something new and sexy 
uh, to get our, um, you know, our numbers up. Okay, well, you know, that's sort of an economic model issue then that has nothing to do with science, uh, but it does uh, cloud things for sure. Yeah, so, and, and Stuart lists, you know, a number of things that, that should be done without throwing the whole thing out. It, it's not like, you know, all studies are corrupt. You know, there's, a, and also I should point out that, you know, we, we're talking about Popperian falsification. That's only part of it. Uh, in fact, what scientists actually do is they don't try to falsify anything. They're really trying to confirm things because, you know, they're subject to motivated reasoning and confirmation bias as much as anybody else. It's the other labs that are trying to, you know, falsify you, really. That's why you got to publish those replication studies by the other labs that are trying to debunk you. Uh, but but really, the whole process moves along if you want to you know, invoke your uh, asymptotic curve metaphor um, in a Bayesian way, like I'm, my confidence is growing on the credence of this particular theory because I keep updating my priors with each new experiment that fails to falsify. So the failure to falsify is just kind of in the negative direction, but that pushes me in the positive direction toward a, a greater confidence that I'm going down the right path. This probably is gonna work out, maybe not, but you know, I'm, I'm growing more confident all the time in this kind of cumulative way. So you get this both push and pull, uh, positive negative effects there with science. and. Um, here, I'd also recommend Naomi Oreskes' book, Why, uh, Why Trust Science. You know, Naomi has a bunch of examples, including from climate science, to pick a, a super relevant topic. You know, when you hear about the climate consensus by the IPCC, here's our paper, you know, you know 10,000 scientists, and here's what they think. Okay, well, this isn't a democracy. Like, we just, they just meet on the weekends and go, okay, show of hands, how many think anthropogenic global warming is real? No, it's not like that at all. Uh, it's that, you know, you take, say, 10,000 published peer-reviewed journal papers on climate science, and what percentage conclude anthropogenic global warming is real? Well, 97%. That's where that number comes from. Well, what about the other 3%? Maybe they're right. You know, in the history of science, sometimes the minority people or even just one person turns out to be right, and the whole group is wrong. Well, yes, that's possible. But... And in this case, you know, there's so many independent scientists working in completely different fields. You know, you got the guy studying glaciers, and this one studies sunspots, and that one studies volcano. This one studies ocean acidification. This one studies the rise of sea level. This one studies, you know, flowering plants and when they start to bloom in the spring. This one studies bird behavior. They're not, they don't meet on the weekends to get their story straight so they can destroy, you know, conservative American capitalism because we're all socialists. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. There's no conspiracy. <laughs> they don't even know each other. They don't publish the same journals. They don't go to the same conferences. And they're all coming to the same conclusion. So that increases my confidence that, yeah, this, you know, this is probably true because it's not like they're all deluded in the same direction. It's one of the distinguishing factors between science and other uh, methods of truth, I find, is that science, uh, you don't have to have a common shared uh, community upbringing. You know, you don't have to have it passed down from your parents. You don't have to have, live in the same place. You don't have to have the same skin color. You don't have to have the same religious background. It's such a diverse group of people coming to the same answer that bias seems outrageous. Yeah, very unlikely. Same thing with evolutionary theory. We're confident because 
you know, the, these, this convergence of evidence from multiple lines of inquiry, paleontology and geology and comparative anatomy and comparative physiology and lots of genetics, the fossil record. You know, they're all converging to the same conclusion, you know, common ancestor and so on. Um, and so it's not like they could possibly be totally diluted by some overarching ideology that clouds everybody's thinking. And yes, there are the occasional skeptics. They're, you can, they're almost always, you know, it turns out to be, you know, they're Christian conservatives or they have some motive there. Intelligent design creation is the latest version from old, old world, uh, uh, old age versus young age uh, creationism. And so on. there's occasional real scientists that has no religious motive, but they're very rare. And they're usually outside of the field. Like when Fred Hoyle, the cosmologist, who promoted the steady state theory in con contrast with the Big Bang theory? You know, he famously you know, did some calculations and showed that you know the it, it, evolution would be the equivalent of a jumbo jet. You know, uh, you know all the parts of a jumbo jet in a in a big warehouse coming together to form the perfect jump you know, by chance. You know, and of course, people like Dawkins just destroyed this argument. It's not random. You know, it's a it's cumulative selection, you know, and this just comes from ignorance. Just that he didn't know what he was talking about. And so you have to have some knowledge of the field. He actually coined the term Big Bang as a derogatory term for the for the expanding universe. <laughs> right. Posture, right. It? Yeah, that's it all right. just came out with a Big Bang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out that was true, even though he didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, anti-science sentiment seems to be everywhere and growing. I, one of the reasons I started this podcast is I felt like I've been losing the battle, you know, coming from the space age and man on the moon. And, and we feel like I feel like we're going backwards in a lot of ways, you know, nuclear power in the 70s. And now we're back to sticks and rocks and wind. Skepticism has a bad name in society right now. A large fraction of the populace are taught to value faith as a core tenant, obviously, as a religious uh a large portion of the populace is religious and faith is held up. You know, don't question faith is a, a value that, that you should have. And scientists are painted in a bad light because they quote, don't believe in anything. How, how did we get such a bad name and how do we fix it? <laughs> yeah. Well, a couple of things uh, there. I, I think on the plus side of things, most people are not anti-science, even those who we call anti-science because they deny global warming, say. It's almost always just one particular hot-button issue that bu bu bugs them. Uh, you know, in the case of climate sciences, you know, conservatives who hold, you know, kind of free market economic policy, libertarian economic policy, and they feel like this is going to be a curb on economic growth and so on. Nothing to do with the science. It's just like, oh, my God, if this is true, then the libtards are going to you know, pass all this legislation and ruin our economy. Right. But but they go to doctors, they fly in planes, they, you know, they accept the germ theory of disease, you know, and and so on. And uh, it's it, so it's not just. Uh, anti-science across the board. Almost everybody has a particular hot button issue. Christians with evolution say only certain denominations. By the way, most are most other religions have come around to accepting uh, evolution, including Catholics. Um, so it's it's always it's usually just one, focused on one thing. So there we can target that one thing and get them to accept the science without having to give up their 
core belief because they're not going to give that up. So the example I use, if you know, you give somebody a, a Christian who, who's worried about evolution, if you make them choose between Darwin and Jesus, they're, they're not picking the down of sage. They're not picking the English naturalist. He's, he's out, right? Because he doesn't offer eternal life. Um, so you just have to take that off the table. Look, you, you, this evolutionary bias has nothing to do with religion, faith, nothing like that. Yeah, and here, read uh, Francis Collins' book, The Language of God. You know, he's a staunch defender of evolutionary theories, almost as articulate as Richard Dawkins. Not quite, because nobody is. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he's good. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a staunch defense of evolutionary uh, theory, th mainly through genetics. You know, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. You know, his, his cre credentials are pretty good. And, and he's an evangelical Christian. So there I use the kind of team... Uh, a politics uh, angle, you know, he's on your team. He's a he's a major player on your team. He's head of the you know National Institutes of Health. He's a major figure, and he totally accepts evolution. And that always gives people a start, like, oh, huh, all right. Hmm. So I guess I can accept the science without giving up my Christian beliefs. Yes, you can. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'll take another look at that, right? And you have to do that. Yeah, there, there's a statement out there called Voices for Evolution. I think most major religions are coming out in favor of scientific uh, descriptions of origins as being fine and, and not contradictory with their faith. Yes, that's right. So um, Francis has, has an organization called BioLogos, which is um, theistic evolution uh, is their approach. So it's, it's kind of a... God directed evolution. In other words, they accept all aspects of evolution, uh, except maybe the moral values come from evolution. I think they, they don't accept that. Although a lot of uh, liberal left-leaning evolutionary biologists don't accept that either. You know, they, they, they feel it's entirely cultural. That's a separate issue. But for the for the, the, the someone like Francis Collins, the whole thing is directed from on top. Not, not that God uh, tinkers with every species, every newborn, you know, that, that God designed the laws of nature to unravel and uh, I should say unfold as they do. The original meaning of embryology is unfolding, including embryological unfolding uh, would be itself just kind of built into the laws of genetics, say, in this example. And, uh, you know, building proteins from, you know, DNA and, and so forth. That all just happens naturally because that's the way God designed it. So, therefore, you don't have to give up anything. You know, the, and, and, and Darwin made a similar argument in the second edition of The Origin of Species. He, he addressed the challenge to theism claims made against him, saying, I don't see why everybody's upset about this. In Newton's time, they were worried about Newtonian mechanics, you know, taking God out of the picture. But, in fact, most people came to accept the fact that, well, that's how God creates solar systems. He uses gravity. Oh, okay. You don't need angels to push the planets around in their orbits anymore. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole system just runs itself, the mechanical clockwork. And maybe that's how God is the diversity of life. He used natural selection and sexual selection. Oh, okay. So that that is a clever strategy. I mean, Darwin didn't believe that, but, you know, that's, that's a strategy you could use. And it's not anti-science to think that. It's just, you know, it's a, a different level of analysis. It has nothing to do with science. I think that... There seems to be in society a huge resurgence in magical thinking, though. I mean, it's not that 
necessarily people are anti-science. Maybe they just don't think of it. But I mean, back in the mid 20th century, science was trusted and superstitious woo was generally dismissed, in my opinion. I mean, my anecdote for this is, is Scooby-Doo. If you ever watch Scooby-Doo, the <laughs> cartoon, know you know, I love that I love cartoon as a child. And then they always unmasked the, the villain. It was always someone who had a reason to be dressing up as a ghost. Well, then I watched it. They had a, a reboot and my kids were watching it. And there was real ghosts. Uh, really? And oh, it was, no. Scooby. Yeah, yeah. There were real superstitious stuff going on and ghosts. And Oh, no. I'm so like, sorry to hear that. the heck? They've ruined well, it. Well, maybe. Who knows? I mean, whoever the writers are, maybe they got swept up by some new age movement or something. I don't know. The trend lines, the, the polling data is very inconsistent about this. That is to say, since like the 60s. Uh, are paranormal beliefs going up or down? Well, it depends on which poll you're looking at and which claim is being analyzed. Some go up, some go down. Um, and so I'm, you know, we have the Skeptic Research Center now that that we're funding, and have a couple of my ex graduate students now professors uh, running this, and we're so we're launching this year in 2021 a big study on this, try to figure out. What is exactly people believe? Because it's hard to say. Because it also depends very much on the wording uh, that you use. Um, you know, to to what extent people believe it. You know, if you say, "Is it possible that there could be something to this claim?" Yeah. Oh, the average person will go, "Yeah, my guy guess. I'll tick that box." Versus, "Do you think this is exactly what happened?" Well, no. You know, so the wording very much uh, determines what you're, you're going to capture there. Aside from, you know, is it a random, statistically random sample from the population? Is your N large enough to be representative? And, and, and so on and so forth. Of course, you do all that. That's expensive to do, by the way. I'm um, spending something like, not me, the skeptics, but uh, I think it was like 30000 bucks to conduct a really good study on this. You know, with like a, an N of like, uh, I think it was like 20, an N of 20,000 over the course of four different big studies we're conducting in the next six months. You know, and this, this uh, another pressure on how science is done. It's some, it just takes money to really do it right. You know, you got to you know, make sure that you're, you know, you're getting what you got to run some trial studies of the questions. You know, in my mind, when I ask, you know, do you think QAnon is real? Uh, say, for example, is the person take, reading it, are they thinking the same thing I'm thinking? Because maybe they're not thinking that. Maybe they're thinking something completely different. You know, I can't get in their head, right? So polling, self-report data is always you know, problematic in the social sciences. So you have to, you have to run these trials to, to make sure that, you know, the content validity is there, that you're, you're really actually measuring what you think you're measuring, another complexity of the social sciences. So this, this is one of the reasons they only use 95% as their standard rather than 99.9999. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's easy to pull electrons and much cheaper. <laughs> uh, but to your, to your larger question, I, it's not true that things are getting worse. It's just not clear whether they're getting better or worse. We just, we, we just okay. don't know. Well, that, that's heartening. Uh, and again, it, 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 and it, it gets bumped around also by pop culture things like, you know, exorcisms were pretty big after the exorcist, you know, and belief and demons and that kind of stuff. And then that kind of went away for a while. And, and then other things popped up, depending on, you know, what was popular in films and things like that, or how many people watch Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, all that matter. You know, conspiracy theories come and go. I mean, the JFK was the mother of all conspiracy theories until 9-11. And then 9-11 was bumped off the stage by the birthers. And then the birthers were bumped off the stage by QAnon and the rigged election stuff. You know, and, and, and so that kind of comes and goes. So it's hard to say with long-term trends. I, I mean, we could look historically, say the last 500 years, 
And, you know, when you read historians' accounts of what people believed, say, in 1500, um, it, you know, it was pretty superstitious. I mean, almost pretty much everybody believed, of course, in God, but not just God and demons, and not just demons, but witches. And there was even a, you know, even a scholarly discussion uh, about this. You know, you know if, if demons are not real, you know, if we, no, here, here was the sequence. If witches are not real, because there was some pushback, like, you know, this thing about women flying in a brooms, what? I mean, maybe <laughs> this is all bullshit. And they go, well, hang on now. If, you know, if witches are not real, then maybe demons aren't real. And if demons aren't real, maybe the devil doesn't exist. And no devil, no God. It's oh, like, cool. hang on now. Let's not go too far down this road of skepticism here. <laughs> it's a slippery <laughs> you know, so slope. So even then, because pretty much everybody believed that, like plagues and pandemics, uh, storms, accidents, uh, you know, tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, all of it, uh, particularly uh, kind of accidents and bad things that happen to people or villages and communities, you know, were somehow connected to supernatural forces. You know, again, gods or demons or, you know, who knows what, which is, mm -hmm. you know, which is, is a causal theory. You know, this is what we think caused it, you know, and evidence was, you know, well, we saw, we saw, you know, uh, Pastor Goody's uh, daughter, you know, cavorting in the middle of the night. She was doing something weird. I think it must have been the demons. And then I heard she, they saw the demon, you know, and then pretty soon you got a, you know, witch, a witch craze going. You know, that was evidence then. Uh, and of course, we know better now, but we only know better because of, you know, the scientific method evolving. True, uh, true. And the, and the whole thing is designed to get around this human propensity of motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, all that. I mean, mo most people, I don't think have the time or the expertise to prob properly assess scientific or anti-scientific claims. Um, you know, people are struggling these days. They're working longer hours with less free time. Um, they're basically stuck following their leaders and their social leaders. And I think, you know, 99% of the opposition is just these leaders leading people astray. And people get entrained in this and, and you need to break them out somehow. Yeah, let's let's think about that for a second, because, in fact, that's always been true. I, none of us have the uh, capacity or resources to check claims. I mean, maybe get 60 Minutes has a team of fact checkers to, to check a story before I watch it Sunday night at seven. But, you know, I you know, people are always like, hey, you should do an investigation of the rigged election. I'm like. You know, CBS, ABC, NBC, they're all doing, they're spending millions of dollars on these investigations. What am I going to do? You know, I'm just one little guy. I got two researchers, you know, one quarterly magazine. Uh, you know, I'm relying on institutions like uh, the mainstream media, the, the reliable ones, like 60 Minutes, say. Or if, you know, I come across a, you know, a theory of quantum consciousness and because of the spooky action, of this, the double slit experiment, blah, you know, I'm like, what do I know about quantum physics? <laughs> buzzword, buzzword. <laughs> Nothing. So I call my quantum physics friends and go, okay, what's the story with this double slit experiment? Does this imply there's multiple universe? Does this imply uh, that, you know, something like consciousness, you know, the, the observation of the quantum field, you know, changes it. So you know, the mind, is that what? No, 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 Shermer. Here's what it actually means. Oh, okay. So here, now this isn't faith. I'm not turning to my friends at Caltech or whatever as if they're my preacher, the guru. It's just, I have confidence that the scientific process works and that those guys at Caltech are in competition with those people at MIT and so on. And if, and if somebody was bullshitting, they'd call bullshit on each other. And so by the time I get it, I, I'm reasonably confident that, that, that it's been sorted out by the professionals that work in there. And that's true for all fields. 
You mentioned the competition. I was listening to some of your other work. Um, the competitive nature of science makes it self-correcting. But on the other hand, society seems to idolize competition a little too much. You get nationalism, you get tribalism. What's the proper balance between competition and cooperation? I think we, we do too much competition and idolize it, right? Shouldn't we cooperate more? Yes, well, that's interesting. Um, some of that does happen, I suppose, national physics, say, like the Eddington thing, back to the the eclipse experiment, you know, one... One aspect of that was, well, you know, those Germans, they're getting all this credit, you know, for all these breakthroughs in physics. You know, we Englishmen, we got to get in there, right? So some of that. Um, but also, um, Einstein was an internationalist, and Eddington recognized that Einstein rejected kind of German nationalism. So he also wanted to support Einstein for that. <laughs> so that's a little bit of what you're talking about there, I think, touches on some of that. I think, but less nationalistic uh, science today is is more like uh, theory teams. Like you know, I I think nature is is a more powerful force in human behavior, and you think nurture is a more powerful force. Well, of course, we know both interact. But which one do you emphasize more? You know, and so this would be something like to to pick a, a couple of hot button topics. Something like you know, to what extent do genes versus the environment lead to criminal behavior, criminal activity. Um, you know, well, there, this is a pretty, you know, highly disputed subject and, or intelligence or gender or, you know, whatever. Uh, just pick one that people get incensed about and cancel each other on, on Twitter. Uh, it, you know, and there you have kind of team, uh, a team sport in Nature Nurture. Does that trickle down to the researchers themselves? Yes, sometimes it does. There's a... There's a bias. There's a bias that uh, can show there. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, those you know those people that were saying, you know, race, race and IQ, racial differences and uh, racial group differences in IQ scores. Well, look at the guys who were saying that. You know, there are these eugenicists, these you know kind of racist bigots. You know, it's a, that that would be an example of your you know not na you know na not national, but 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 this kind of tribal. Uh, influence on scientific results, where this group versus that group, and, and this goes on in almost all fields, uh, you know, in linguistics and I don't know archaeology, like anthropology. The anthropology awards in the 1990s got so bad that the um, the cultural anthropologists and the biological anthropologists were so divided that they split like into different buildings on some campuses, like at Stanford, they had two different departments, different heads of departments, different budgets, they didn't talk to each other, apparently I'm told, Wow. Um, and so on. They're just so divided over, you know, culture versus biology. And and, and then it got worse because the, 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 the bi biological anthropologists felt, well, we're doing the real science, we're doing the hard science. You know, we're doing genetics and fossils and, 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 and pollen seeds, and you know, we got real data. And those cultural anthropologists, there's kind of a new age, 1960s woo-woo stuff, you know. <laughs> How does it feel to be in this culture? And, and of course, the, you know, the, the animus went the other direction as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting observation. And, and it, uh, you feel like you can do more with cooperation. You look at the physics, the big communities and the ex particle accelerators, and you basically have everybody in the community is working on one project because it's so expensive. But then you see them publish a paper and like there's no opposition because 
they're the only group in the field. So it makes you a little bit nervous about that result. <laughs> yeah, where the byline is longer than the article itself. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a it's a difficult line to walk, I think. Well, there I, I suppose, uh, yeah. I mean, if you only have one particle accelerator the size of, size of CERN, and there's you know it costs you know billions of dollars to build and takes twenty years, yeah, you're not going to have you know. Well, why doesn't some other lab test it? There is no other lab. <laughs> yeah. So what are the chances? Well, even there, um, I'm reasonably confident that. You know, this one person here says, well, look at the this little particle did this, whatever the wavy thing it does in that, that little cloud chamber. What I don't even know what I'm talking about at this point. <laughs> but, you know, on the photo, they're trying to interpret what this data means. And I assume that, you know, when they're in their meetings, it, you know, they're not deluding each other, that somebody would go, hey, wait a minute. I don't think that's what that means. And then they would they would d debate it, discuss it. You know, I'm reasonably confident that would happen. No, it, it, and it does. I mean, I'm also reasonably confident about it, but you just have that. It may take longer when you have everybody on one team for, for this, the skeptical voices to be heard and, and properly given their due. Also, I should point out that in the history of fraud in science, of which there is some, um, you know, creationists always point this out. Look, these guys were wrong about this and that. So how do you know you're not wrong about evolution in general? Well, first of all, it's never the creationists that figured out that that fossil was not an ancient hominid. It was a pig that was buried, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, it was some other scientist, the, you know, the graduate student figured it out. Or, and actually, most fraud has been exposed, you know, that the guy was faking his data. He just made the numbers up, wrote them down in his lab book. Well, it's usually a graduate student or some insider that saw it happen. And now we have whistleblower laws to protect them from being punished for coming forward. So, it, you know, the, that would be an example of the scientific process itself working it's in, a, in that self-correcting way. Now, on the other side of the coin, the, in the opposition to science, um, you probably, you're probably very familiar with postmodernist thought. And I remember going through people, you know, philosophers coming at me with postmodernist ideas and saying that there is no objective reality and there are no universal truths. And all science is, is a, a community which are coming together with the same mindset to culturally construct a false truth. Or, you know, we're a community of dupes, basically fooling ourselves. And it gives credence, I think, to alternative facts and subjective realities. Is this movement responsible for some of our current problems in anti-science sentiment and, and policy? Some of it, but you know. But to be fair, their original um, challenges to science were pretty reasonable in the say the late '60s, '70s, and into the '80s. That kind of postmodern turn, as it's sometimes called, you know, a lot of their challenges uh, of showing uh, everything I just said, you know, the, the social nature of science and how it operates, um, that was all true. <laughs> and that was a good correction to, you know, if you have numbers, then you're purely objective and there's no bias at all. Well, no, there's a ton of bias in there. But it was a correction that, as, as often happens, goes too far. You know, you can, you can say all of that and that's all true without then throwing everything else out with it in as much as we don't have to say therefore there is no objective reality and we can never say anything confident about it yes that we can first of all we we have to assume there's a reality out there we can't if you go down the road the other road you're going to end up at solecism and you're like uh you know descartes in his you know in his his 
chamber by himself just having a thought experiment. You know, what if this is all fake and I'm the only one, you know, who's conscious? And, and maybe I'm not even conscious. And then, then he realizes, well, wait a minute, then who's asking that question? <laughs> well, there's got to be a brain. And, it, you know, and then if I exist, well, then probably somebody, other brains exist asking similar questions. And then from there, you can build a worldview that includes a, a real world with other people that are really there. You know, there's like this, these philosophical thought experiments, you know, is, uh, is, you know, does my red look like your red as if, you know, the homunculus in my head could leap over into your skull and look at the Cartesian theater in your head to see if the red looks like my red. Okay, this is ridiculous. Just apply the Copernican principle. I'm not special. Uh, my brain operates like your brain, uses dopamine and uh, all the neurotransmitter substances designed the same way. You know, so if you're feeling pain and I see the the signals on your face that look like what I feel when I feel pain, you probably feel what I feel. OK, that's a reasonable assumption, you know, without us having to, you know, throw the whole thing out and go, well, maybe I'm the only mind on the planet and everything else is an illusion. You know, very, very unlikely. Right. So from there, you can build a reality without, you know, and you can recognize the social nature of science and all the flaws and the prejudices that, you know, have happened and so on, but they're self, they're corrected. And we just keep moving on without having, you know, to, to, to go down the total postmodern road. And so, yeah, anyway, that's what. Yeah, I no, I agree. And as in everything, there's a, a grain of truth and a very important uh, realization about bias and the cultural nature of bias and, and, things that people at the time didn't know what they were doing. And that's, I think, as you say, an important correction to keep in mind. But uh, it's, it's there's wackadoodles that just go so far with this thing. that <laughs> <Wackadoodles>. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so that really then is influential when it comes to like the social sciences and humanities, because that then drifts into politics and policy. And then, you know, then, then it starts to really matter. This isn't just, you know, some... You know, quantum physics experiment, what that implies for consciousness or not, or God's existence. You know, this is like, well, what law should we pass about this particular issue, immigration or abortion or whatever? You know, and, and, and that's where the, the postmodern thing becomes dangerous. Uh, you know, the, to pick another hot button topic, the whole trans issue, which, you know, it comes up almost daily. It's a, it's a very polarizing issue, I think. Um, and it's a shame that that gender is such a, a major issue. It shouldn't be, in my opinion, it shouldn't be such a determiner. Society has, has genderized various roles in society. I think, uh, you know, people from the start say this, you're, this represents male, this represents female. And this programming of gender is a problem that leads to this. If I think this wasn't such a um, high priority to have, you know, gender reveal parties of, of, of infants. <laughs> like, yeah. Why is that yeah. even important? It shouldn't be important. Yes, exactly. That's right. It shouldn't be important. The least interesting thing about you should be how much melanin you have in your skin or what bits you have between your legs. Who cares? Indeed. Well, everybody cares now. And okay, but let's separate those issues. They care. Why do they care? Well, because of historical inequities. All right. So we have to start off by saying, okay, yes, the, there are bad things that happened. You know, prejudicial actions that restrain the freedom and liberties and autonomy of people in the past. Let's 
put that on table and say, yes, this happened, this was bad, and we should do something about it. Well, guess what? We have been doing something about it. That's why I wrote, you know, the moral arc, right? This, you know, for centuries, you know, we've been making progress. It's, but it's slow, it's gradual. And, and we know from research now that, you know, slow, gradual, peaceful change is the best way to do it. it, it it's most likely to succeed. You know, if you, if you go down the road toward, you know, rapid, sudden change through violent revolution, that almost always fails. Not always, but almost always fails. Mm. And it's harder to get people to get on board your cause if you start, you know, burning down Starbucks and breaking windows at banks and, you know, just kind of losing your mind about these issues. You know, people aren't going to join, make donations, support, get on the phone and and, and uh, call their congressman and ask for change. You know, it's just not going to happen. But the problem is, is, is the, the way it actually happens is not a good rallying cry. So my little line about this is, you know, it's like, what do we want? Slow, gradual, peaceful change. When do we want it? Eventually. <laughs> it's like no one, no one's coming down to the courthouse to march on that, right? <laughs> you know, that takes, you know, kind of behind the scenes, slow legislative change. And, you know, the, the if you look at the history of like attitudes toward blacks, Jews, women, gays, and so forth, it usually happens from the bottom up. Eventually the laws get changed, which is good. Supreme Court says, okay, this is the law of the land, boom, done. But, but, but the buildup to that is usually decades of shifts in novels, screenplays, you know, films, uh, comic books, you know, TV scripts for television shows. You know, Ellen comes out on her television show as gay. You know, these these kind of little landmarks. Scooby Doo. You know, I'm so <laughs> distressed distressed because I have a five year old son now. My daughter's who's almost thirty. You know, we used to watch Scooby Doo, and it was such a great skeptic show and now I'm, I'm just i want to introduce my son to scooby and now you tell me this i'm like oh no not scooby because <laughs> that was a good bottom up you know it's kind of you, you got to get the old scooby-doo the the, the retro retro look, look for the retro scooby-doo uh, my <laughs> yeah. five-year-old loves it too <laughs> okay oh good okay good he's yes. making lego figures of all the scooby-doo guys so i think we're getting close to the end of, of, our, of our time slot here but this has been a great discussion. We should, we should do it again sometime. I really appreciate you you coming on and, and oh, sure. chatting with me about Happy it. Happy to air my, my grievances anytime. <laughs> They're just kidding. <laughs> one, one final thing. A shout out from Neil deGrasse Tyson on your website. That's really impressive. Can you hook me up with an interview? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll connect you to Neil. He's a good guy. He's a really good guy. And uh, yeah, he's done a lot. I mean, you know, he's so famous that, of course, he gets a lot of pot shots. Whoever's, you know, the kind of the top dog gets gets hammered a lot. But he, he he's, he's great. He's a really good guy. Yeah, yeah. I love him. He's, and he super does, smart. Does great super work. smart. He's so quick. Uh, that's right. He's very fast. He's funny. That matters. People think, well, you know, anybody could do what he does. No, they can't. Most people can't do what he does. You know, Bill Nye, like, like the, he's also really good at communicating things with, with clarity and with humor. And, you know, that's hard to do. You think, oh, I could do that. No, it's, it's like people that watch American Idol. Oh, I could get up there and sing. No, you probably can't. And <laughs> just ask your friends, all right, before you try it. You know, that these things are hard to do. And, you know, Neil's a really smart guy. He really understands the science behind it that he's explaining. So, yeah, it's a rare gift. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you so much for coming on The Rational View. I appreciate it. All right. Keep, keep, keep being rational. <laughs> Let's all do that. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, 
please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.